Ne saurait-on trouver un messager en France qui s'en voudrait aller au jardin de plaisance, dira Robert, Robert, le beau Robert, que la brunette se mourrait. Je suis Robert, Robert, le beau Robert. Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And we are working our way through France and England in North America by Francis Parkman. We are in volume one of this, The Pioneers of France in the New World. Uh, this is a really, really fun book. If you just kind of like narrative history i mean there's so many great stories partially this is like the heroic phase of of french colonialism in the new world right where you have these explorers and these people coming to you know discovering at least from the european point of view new new lands establishing colonies uh putting together meager resources to to send uh groups of convicts or vagabonds you know, people's trying to survive on a mixture of piracy and banditry against the local Indians. It's just really great stories and a lot of interesting personalities, too. And I think one thing I'm really, as I'm coming back and reading Parkman, is just how good he is at making these figures really stand out and, and be fairly memorable. Um, there's a lot of them, though, and, and therefore, it, you know, it takes some notes and it takes some rereading to to in careful reading to to kind of fully appreciate the scale of what Parkman has has done here it's it's really a great achievement um, and you know the other thing I'm noticing is just how much of this narrative has sort of been welded to how we view American history and the history of the French Empire I mean a lot of these arguments and approaches and stories are things that I vaguely remember from even like my middle school years when I first studied like uh, American history or Wisconsin history, you know, these names show up, you know, some of them and, and these stories are, are part of that narrative that has lived, lived on uh, for better or for worse, obviously, because there are um, attitudes and perspectives that are, that are dated and, and, you know, historians can look at this now and, and say how this book is lacking, but you know, it was 150 years ago. So I'm kind of generous for to Two writers like that. And I'm just in awe of the scope of, of, of this work and that Parkman was able to achieve it despite great physical uh, strain. He was basically blind while writing much of this. Um, and, you know, getting together the sources. I mean, he was one of the first to really dig into a lot of these sources, the first Americans to, to dig into a lot of these sources and to, to try to tell this story. Um, and in the last episode, I talked a little bit about his overall perspective uh, in this in this huge work, this three thousand page, seven volume, you know, life's work. Um, but you know, a lot of the work is, you know, these stories that he's he's pieced together, and they're all framed in this overall narrative of the struggle between liberty and and. Uh, uh, liberty versus absolutism in in the Americas, and ultimately he thinks the victory of England in the Americas was because of the very different foundations laid by the French and the English. And he doesn't he does he makes this argument without talking about the English 
um, settlements that much. He focuses on on France and what they they did. A story that would have been more unfamiliar to many Americans at the time. You know, they, they know the Puritan stuff. They they probably knew about Virginia. They 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 knew that history, but probably didn't know so much about the French. So he is making an achievement just in the American consciousness about the international, uh, multiracial, multicultural nature of of the of the frontier but he does it you know having it weighted down by this this thesis which does tend to kind of create this binary approach but that said i think especially in this first volume he's very good at showing how you know even within the french especially in the early years of french settlement the first settlements in places like uh, fort caroline in florida or Port Royal in Acadia and the whole Acadian experiment, which dominates much of the middle part and, and later part of this of this book, this first volume, you know, that the people who came there, you know, had many different motives. They were religiously diverse. And it's only later that absolutism really triumphs in in the Americas. And, and especially in the next episode, I'll talk about Richelieu and and, and how in the impact he's going to have on on the settlement of the Americas, uh, at least the French experiments in that. But in this episode, we're still, and pretty much in the next one too, we're, we're still in the heroic age. We're still in the heroic uh, period of, of, of exploration and, and early settlement. And it, if you like that kind of stuff, this is a, a great book to, to check out. Uh, well, so in addition to introducing this, this whole, his whole thesis, I, I talked about, uh, how he approached the settlements in in Florida. So he begins this huge work with a a bit of a prelude almost, which is is, is almost like a side quest in the overall uh, story that he's interested in, which is Canada and the Great Lakes and the Mississippi, with this story of of Florida, because Florida was a, did have a French Huguenot colony that was destroyed by the Spanish, and so we get a little bit of a story of the early settlement there, the first expeditions of Huguenots to to Florida and the establishment of Fort Caroline, and then the arrival of the Spanish, who using the rhetoric of the Counter-Reformation, of the, of the Wars of Religion, uh, destroyed Fort Caroline uh, under the leadership of this man Menendez, a Spanish, uh, the way Parkman keeps talking about him is like a Spanish bigot. Uh, a religious bigot and you know it's hard to deny that when you look at this this text but because the 16th century i mean they, there's plenty of religious bigotry in in europe uh at the time and plenty of violence uh by both sides uh in the religious wars and we see a bit of that back and forth actually in this these early chapters so <coughs> oh excuse me um where i stopped was with Menendez's, Menendez's, his troops destruction or capture of Fort Caroline. Uh, that was chapter seven. And chapter eight is called The Massacre of the Heretics, 1565. And so uh, Menendez uh, from St. Augustine seizes, his troops seize Fort Caroline, which was the French Huguenot settlement, and, you know, and take the surrender of the people there. And he asks this question, you know, are you a Lutheran or are you Catholic? And most of these people, they, they admit they're Lutherans. And he basically says, okay, you know, now that you admitted you're Lutherans, you have a choice. You can either convert to Catholicism or, or be executed. And most of them uh, stick to their beliefs and are, in fact, executed. There are a few survivors, though. 
um, but not many. But he uses a bit of deception because he sort of says, you know, you'll be fine. You can be honest with me. You know, we'll treat our prisoners well. But when they commit, confess to being Protestants, then they they face the they face death. Um, pretty brutal. So it is indeed a massacre of the surviving uh, members of survivor surviving French at Fort Caroline. Um, and it's a pretty tragic outcome. He describes it in one place. Um, you know, even for the survivors, they weren't in for a very promising future. Quote, such is the sum of the Spanish accounts, the self-damning testimony of the author and abettors of the crime, the picture of lurid and awful coloring. And yet there is reason to believe that the truth is darker still. Among those who were spared was one Chris, Christophe, Christophe Le Breton, who was carried to Spain, escaped to France, and told his story to Charlot. Among those struck down in the butchery was a sailor of deep, stunned and left for dead under a heap of corpses. In the night he revived, contrived to draw his knife, cut the cords that bound his hand, and made his way to an Indian village. The Indians, now without reluctance, abandoned him to the Spaniards, who sold him as a slave. But on his way in fetters to Portugal, the ship was taken by the Huguenots, the sailor set free, and the story published in the narrative of Le Moines. When the massacre was known in France, the friends and relatives of the victims sent to the King Charles IX a vehement petition for redress, and these memorial recounts many incidents of the tragedy. From these three sources is to be drawn the French version of the story. Um, and then we get a description of, uh, of the extent of the violence used. It wasn't just, you know, hanging. It, it was, uh, you know, bodies were burned, uh, people were drawn and quartered and all that so this is the work of menendez and the spanish in fort for caroline all justified in the war against the, the protestants um after that in chapter nine we get a little interlude where we get some of what's going on back in europe with a chapter called charles the ninth and philip the second um, and this is about how the news of the massacre reaches the the spanish court uh, how the French try to get some apology or redress for it, and how the Spanish court uh, just summarily rejects those those um, those complaints. Remember, uh, Spain and France at this time were were largely on the same side in the in the efforts to suppress Protestantism in Europe, uh, and of course, you know, the French wars of religion, you know, it was contested. Uh, who would dominate even though the catholics were the dominant force in france the huguenots had a lot of urban power they were uh, a very much more of a professional class much more middle class and and had a lot of royal support or noble support not royal support so much but noble support including the ultimate victor in the french wars of religion was for a time of a protestant obviously henry henry the fourth um but uh that's a very very complex and bloody and long history which you may have studied in in brief uh we don't need to go over it so much here except as a backdrop and then uh parkman ends his chat his section as part one of this first volume the pioneers of new france with the story of dominique de gorges who essentially you know wreaks revenge on the spanish for the massacre at fort caroline and that seems to be his his life's work here and what he's most known for. So he actually, you know, brings an expedition back to Florida to, to you know, get his revenge by, you know, attacking the, the Spanish there. Um, but, you know, not long after that, he kind of fades from, from history. 
um, and Florida, you know, basically becomes marginal to all these empires from that point on. It's not really a tenable for it. The Spanish really don't take advantage of the removal of the French Huguenots. And how does this fit into his story? Well, this whole this this whole section is, as I said, sort of a prelude to his big story, which is more about Canada. However, he does a very very good job of of suggesting that perhaps the Huguenots could have provided another model of what the French in the New World could have been. I don't think it's as convincing as he thinks it is, given that, you know, these weren't, he wants to compare them to the Puritans a little bit, but they weren't the Puritans in the sense of, of how they worked on actually establishing a colony with, you know, with families, with institutions, with uh, certain political institutions and, and religious institutions that would endure um, now, obviously, if Fort Carolina had time to thrive, maybe it would have been different. Maybe this would have been the equivalent like the Pilgrims. And then later on, you would have a larger Huguenot settlement that it could have came. And you would have had a different kind of seed planted for, for French colonization. But that does not happen. Instead, we get the, you know, absolutism eventually being planted at that seed. Um, Parkman writes... It was he, Menendez, who crushed French Protestantism in America. To plant religious freedom on the Western soil was not the mission of France. It was to her to rear in northern forests the banner of absolutism and of Rome. While among the rocks of Massachusetts, England, and Calvin fronted her in dogged opposition. Long before the ice-crusted pines of Plymouth had listened to the rugged psalmody of the Puritan, the solitudes of western New York and the stern wilderness of Lake Huron were trotted by the iron heel of the soldier and sandaled foot of the Franciscan friar. France was the true pioneer of the Great West. They who bore the furly were always in the van, patient, daring, and indomitable. And foremost on the bright roll of forest chivalry hangs the half-forgotten name of Samuel de Champlain. And then we jump into kind of part, part two of volume one, uh, which is called Samuel de Champlain and his associates. So this is the story. I mean, Samuel de Champlain is like the overarching narrative here. Uh, his activities in Canada and on the coast of, of the Americas and his, his life's work there. But within that, it's, of course, Samuel de Champlain and his associates. So we get other characters, other names that maybe are less familiar to the casual reader of history. You know, the people, for instance, who established the, the colony at Port Royal, Acadia, the first Jesuits in Acadia, the Jesuit mission in Acadia, you know, obviously much more well known is the, the French Jesuit mission in Canada among the Hurons, among the Algonquins, among those different groups, uh, very, very well known and documented. But there was a, a Jesuit mission in Acadia too. Of course, Acadia eventually falls sometime in the 15th century and then it gets rebuilt and it would remain there until is it till the seven till 1718 or so it, it, eventually the english kick the french out of acadia they move many of them move to mississippi the lower mississippi valley and they become of course the cajun population that's where the word cajun comes from as i understand from this acadian population of french uh americans uh so there's a longer story here but in this Part two, we get the story of Champlain and the story of Acadia kind of intertwined, and then the different personalities that uh, played a role in that. And I, and I think, again, that's really where Parkman shines, is in the 
plethora of personalities he's able to bring to life to the to the reader in his his story and for instance in chapter one of part two early french adventure in north america we just get a whole list of names we get uh verrazano who's like the first french explorer although there is kind of a, a throw out here to something i didn't hear before and i must have forgot about uh this idea that a couple years before Columbus, some Breton sailors had actually reached North America and, and that the French were somehow denied this claim to having, you know, quote unquote, discovered America. Um, you know, uh, Parkman doesn't really put too much credence in it. He doesn't take it seriously, but he does mention it as something that was believed among some French at the time. Um, but there's no real evidence of that. The first real documented mission we have is Verrazano's. Uh, expedition and he's going to kind of explore the the northern coast north america like new york uh what would become new england that that region um and even i think the shores of virginia too um as well eventually uh i think his death is kind he's killed by indians yeah but we don't really know oh no there's there's different theories about what happened to him killed by Indians. Um, and I think Wikipedia, I looked this up, confirmed this, that, that he was uh, hanged as a pirate under a different name at some point later by the Spanish. Um, but anyways, he kind of is on that coast of Maine. That's going to be important because that's, that's near where Acadia uh, is, is established. We got a little bit here about the Newfoundland fisheries. Of course, another important part of English and French uh, colonial penetration into North America. And so the importance of these fisheries was tied to cod because cod was, cod was, I, I heard it described by one historian as kind of the protein bars of the early modern world because cod could be processed and salted and preserved. And it was like really, you know, high nutrient value for for the weight and size and and it could be stored for a long time once it was properly um, processed so ships needed a lot of this cod it was just an important part of the european diet especially for mariners and others so the establishment of these newfoundland fisheries was was you know some of the earliest northern european and, and french presence in in the north atlantic so they're talked about in this chapter we also, of course, get the story of Cartier, um, another early. Uh, now, he's he's actually French, but uh, Verrazano was Italian, working for the French. A lot of these people, a lot of these explorers were free agents, of course, right? Columbus, um, Italian. Um, and we get his explorations described here. Um, and then ultimately, we get the first settlements at St. Lawrence. And they're pretty dubious. To be honest, and you know, I think Parkman has this idea in his head. He compares everything to the Puritans, and the Puritans, you know, came with this goal, this planning of like a long-term religious settlement with institutions. And although he doesn't talk about them directly, they're always in his mind as kind of a contrast. And a lot of these early French settlements seem really not to have that foundation. And I think one big difference that he's aware of is so many of these early French colonists were single men many were criminals kind of more of a vagabond group they're really richly diverse they didn't have that kind of ideological unity they didn't have the that those families that would ensure kind of the endurance of a settlement of a community and that uh 
you know, seems to be a something that's going to prevent large large scale colonization until you. But what's you're going to get instead, though, is a lot more centralized efforts from the from the French court, you know, a lot more central planning and a lot more Jesuit presence and things like that. So it's a little bit more hierarchical um, institutions end up being established in lieu of something more bottom up, something more grass rooted. He sort of alludes to this when summing up the, the kind of the dubious faith of these early St. Lawrence um, River Valley settlements. Quote, with him, um, this is Cartier, uh, with him closes the prelude of the French-American drama. Tempestuous years and a reign of blood and fire were in store for France. The religious wars begot the hapless colony, colony of Florida. But for more than half a century, they left New France a desert. Order rose at length out of the sanguinary chaos. The zeal of discovery and the spirit of commercial enterprise awoke once more, while closely following more potent than ever, moved the black robed forces of the Roman Catholic reaction. So, you know, kind of, he writes a whole book about the Jesuits, but that, that sort of sums up his view of the Jesuits, it seems to me. Now, despite this, in chapter two, uh, which is set from 1542 to 1604, it's called La Roche Champlain de Mont, three major uh, figures in early French colonial history in America. Uh, but we see the steady growth of pr French presence, especially in these Newfoundland um, uh, fisheries. Uh, you know, in 1545, two vessels a day sailed from French ports for Newfoundland. Um, in 1578, there were 150 French fishing vessels there, besides 200 from other nations. In 1607, there was an old French fisherman at Coso who had voyaged to these seas for 42 successive years. Now, I don't know how long these voyages lasted, so what does it tell us? There were 150 there at once in 1578. How does that compare to two a day leaving for, for France? Um, but what this isn't is, of course, an established colony that's going to endure. This is just exploiting the sea. Um, so the movement to sh move from that towards settlement in America is going to take the initiative of this new kind of generation of, of explorers and settlers who begin to come in the later years of the 16th century and then really taking off under, under Champlain and uh, Portrecourt, people like that in the early 17th century with the establishment of Acadia. The first of these was La Roche. Um, and he's seeking wealth in the form of a monopoly. Uh, quote, a Catholic nobleman of Brittany, the Marquis de la Roche, bargained with the king to colonize New France. On his part, he was to receive a monopoly of the trade and a profusion of worthless titles and empty privileges. He was declared Lieutenant General of Canada, Hochelgana, Newfoundland, Labrador, and countries adjacent with sovereign power within his vast and ill-defined domain. He could levy troops, declare war and peace, make law, punish or pardon at will, build cities, forts, castles, and grant out lands and fiefs, signories, counties, viscounts, and baronies. This was a feat in cumbrous, cumbrous feudalism to make a lodgment in the new world. Um, so that's the, you know, the English did the same sort of thing. I mean, this a lot of these colonies for both England and France were, were, were favors granted out to nobility, you know, where the goal seemed to be, you know, some sort of monarchical feudal structure would, would carry on there. And obviously these are still feudal societies politically changing in the modern era, of course, 
but still prim primarily politically bound to feudalism. And that's the case of England as well. I mean, in a way, the Puritans really seem to me to be a kind of an exception. And that's one thing I don't know if Parkman fully appreciates is just how much the Puritans were the oddball. So to make them the comparison, I think is a little bit uh, a little bit myopic, perhaps. But again, I'm not I'm not one to hear to pick on and break down Parkman's argument. I just want to present it to you, and if if you're interested, um, you know, then we get uh, what do we got here? Yeah, the the, the Roche ends up bringing criminals. So his uh, his colony is made up initially of criminals. Um, but then that doesn't really go very far. And then as the French recover from the religious wars, that's when we get Champlain arriving. And it's going to be uh, through Sh uh, Champlain and some of his other other people that we get the colony at Acadia, at, at, at Port Royal. And this is also another vagabond group of, of settlers. Um, you know, how does he describe it? Uh, this is actually De Monts, because um, he's the one who actually led this this settlement there in Acadia. A clause for his commission empowered him to impress idlers and vagabonds as material for his colony, an ominous provision of which he largely availed himself. The company was strangely incongruous. incongruous. The best and the meanest of France were crowded together in his two ships. Here were thieves and ruffians dragged on board by force, and here were many volunteers of condition and character with Baron du Pontrecourt, uh, Pontrecourt will be the governor of, of Acadia early on, and the indefatigable Champlain. Here, too, were Catholic priests and Huguenot ministers, for though Desmont was a Calvinist, the church, as usual, displayed her banner in the van of the enterprise, and he was forced to promise that he would cause the Indians to be instructed in the dogma of Rome. So the seed there of this kind of what Parkman calls this Catholic reaction is there from the beginning here. Uh, chapter 3 of Part 2 of this volume looks at the, the story of Acadia, um, the occupation of Acadia, uh, which takes place over 1604 and 1605 under the leadership of Dumont and um, this Pontrecourt, who, who ends up taking over as, as the real governor, uh, at least until this experiment in Acadia fails. Pontrecourt goes back to France and, and dies there in, in some kind of war. And that's pretty much what we get in the rest of this this section of the book. Chapter four deals with uh, Champlain and, and Les Carbeau, uh, Marc Les Carbeau, who was, um, he spends like one year in Acadia. He, he ends up writing a book about it called uh, The History of, of New France in 1609, uh, which was just basically his account of his one year or so there. Um you know, and this ends up being a fairly diverse settlement. I, I think I, I kind of get some of not quite the same vibes as with the Huguenot settlement, but the idea that maybe there was some kind of alternative kind of world that could have been established here. Like maybe, you know, maybe it's a little too vagabondish, though, maybe. Because he's still got that Puritan comparison in his mind. And the Puritans didn't have that so much. The Puritans were much more grounded. Uh, these people were not, um, you know, no, not even a religiously uh, homogenous. You know, there are a lot of Huguenots there and Protestants. Um, so, but anyways, um, chapter five is called the Jesuits and their patronage. So this is the beginning of the Jesuit mission in Acadia, which seems to have the mission both of kind of being an adjunct of 
French absolutism eventually, or at this time it's before absolutism, but of the French monarchy, but also of the church and the Jesuits under people like this guy named Biard, who's the leader of this Jesuit mission, uh, you know, begin to establish more of an institutional order on, on society in, in early Acadia. Um, and that's going to, of course, change its course from being a more vagabond type settlement to something a little bit more institutionalized. Um, so that's as far as I'll go today into this book. So I'm through chapter five of part two. Um, in the next episode, I'll finish up uh, the pioneers of France in the New World uh, with uh, more of the story of Quebec. So Champlain's, of course, great achievement is the establishment of, of Quebec. We'll, we'll finish up the story of Acadia and what happens there. And... Um, yeah, and finish up this book. It, it kind of it, it climaxes with the, the death of, of Champlain. So um, that's going to be it for now. So if you have any questions or thoughts about this uh, book, Pioneers of, New, of France in the New World, let me know what they are. Um, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And I will uh, talk to you next time when we finish up this volume um, or this first book of, of this massive work. So thanks for listening and I will see you next time. de la ville, il a ouï chanter la louette joyeuse qui en son chant, son joli chant disait que la brunette guérissait. Et quand Robert y fut au milieu de la chambre, il avait oublié toutes ses contenances, il fit trois tours, trois tours autour du lit.